Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver Trading. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and yes, our second segment today, I am pleased to welcome James Corbett of the Corbett Report to the program as he joins us uh, every other week. Wish we could have him here more often, but, you know, maybe we can encourage him to, you know, maybe... Every other week? Well, I guess that's what you're doing yeah. now. Anyway, <laughs> I'm doing every other week. <laughs> Don't add more to my plate, please. I know, I know. I'm just kidding. But I do want to welcome you to the program. I want to encourage the listeners to visit your website, the CorbettReport.com, thecorbettreport.com. And of course, you're also the lead writer for the International Forecaster. And please, ladies and gentlemen, visit theinternationalforecaster.com. Request your complimentary copy and um, subscribe. Uh, to the newsletter. It's a great, great uh, uh, newsletter that comes out twice uh, twice a week. So um, let's get started right away, James. There was a couple of things I wanted to talk about, and I just saw the headline, and five Iranian boats. Now, we're pre-recording this on Wednesday evening. This will air Friday, so a lot's going to transpire between now and Friday, but... Five Iranian boats reportedly tried to seize a British oil tanker off Iran uh, yesterday. The Iran's elite revolutionary guard tried to take control of the vessel as it passed through the Strait of Hormuz. And, of course, that's just sparked a little bit of a tense tense standoff uh, in the Persian Gulf. Same old thing, or is this just a flexing of muscles? Uh, is this... Uh, trying to engage confrontation to take it to the next level? Do we need to pay attention or is this just another fake news? Maybe all of the above. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, okay. Uh, first of all, I am just seeing this news now myself, so I, I can't comment on this particular story in any degree of detail. And as you say, it will probably move on by the time uh, we arrive at Friday when the people are listening to this. But um, I, just in a general sense, I will say that it has been the uh, the go-to for decades and decades and decades for the U.S. Uh, deep state establishment, whatever you want to call it, uh, to launch naval false flags of one form or another in order to justify broader wars. Of course, everyone knows that's how the U.S. got into World War II. I mean, whatever you think of Pearl Harbor and what happened there and how it happened, but at any rate, that is what got the U.S. into World War II and broke what was at that time a very strong isolationist American... I'm even adopting these words, and those words are weaponized. It's not isolationist to not want to get involved in foreign wars, but that's, of course, the way that it's portrayed. Anyway, there was an America First movement that was very strong at that time, but that was completely overcome by Pearl Harbor. And this is a lesson of history. It was how the uh, USS Maine, the sinking of the Maine, and, you know, to hell with Spain, got uh, the U.S. into the the Spanish-American War. It's how... Uh, the Vietnam War officially launched, although, of course, the U.S. was already there in a military capacity before the Gulf of Tonkin incident. That was, of course, the the official justification for the launching of what became the Vietnam War, although, of course, not an officially declared war, but still kinetic military action, whatever they call it. And we know, as I detailed in a video report quite recently on uh, four times the U.S. Uh, staged an attack to blame it on Iran, 
something along those lines, or, or talk, threatened to stage an attack. Um, we know that uh, Seymour Hersh has reported that uh, Vice President Cheney at the time in, of course, the Bush administration uh, back a decade uh, plus ago, had a meeting in which various options for starting a war with Iran were discussed, including dressing U.S. Uh, naval officers up as Iranians, um, dressing up a boat as an Iranian PT boat, and staging an incident where uh, they fired on an American vessel in order to, to, uh, to justify uh, an invasion of Iran or a military response against Iran. Uh, that was ultimately rejected. It must be said that plan was ultimately rejected because you can't fire on Americans with Americans. Um, but at any rate, it was talked about in that meeting. Um, so we know that this is a go-to. Uh, so that's why whenever there's these kinds of incidents in the Persian Gulf, in the Gulf of Oman, in these other sensitive areas, I have to think about that history and have to wonder, are we being reported the truth? Having said that, let's not always and reflexively dismiss everything. These types of incidents certainly could be Iran uh, trying to use its uh, actual sovereign right uh, to defend its own waters and territories, which is ha uh, happens all the time. For example, the recent shootdown of that drone over uh, uh, Iranian airspace, as uh, as Iran uh, has pointed out, uh, was almost used uh, as some sort of justification for some sort of strike that apparently, supposedly, Trump called off. Although there's a lot of question marks about that incident. So there is a, uh, there are genuine motives for Iran to be active and and patrolling its waters and territories. So we shouldn't dismiss these types of uh, things as fake news without uh, further justification. If people want that side of the story, I will point them to the Moon of Alabama blog, which uh, does a lot of good, thoughtful, serious posts on geopolitical issues, and uh, did have one up right after that time a few weeks ago when the Japanese prime minister was visiting Iran and there was those attacks on the tankers mm -hmm. in the Gulf of Oman. There was a post up on Moon of Alabama. Today's attacks on ships in the Gulf of Oman are not in Iran's interest, dash, or are they? In which he makes a case, well, it, it, this could be Iran and they do have reasons for doing this type of thing and they have done this type of thing in the past. So it, we shouldn't just knee-jerk dismiss this information, but we have to take it with a grain of salt and we have to understand the context which it's coming in. And I'll put this in my own uh, way of looking at these incidents, whether it is Iran or whether it is the U.S. or, you know, Israel or Saudi Arabia or whoever else st staging an attack in order to blame it on Iran, whatever the case may be, we know whoever is doing it is doing it specifically to ramp up tensions and to escalate things into a crisis. And that does benefit extremists on all sides of the conflict, people who want and desire some sort of conflict and war. Um, but it certainly doesn't benefit humanity as a whole. And... You know, we're already starting to see the stories about if there's a, some sort of incident in the Persian Gulf, if we go to war with Iran, you know, $325 barrel oil, as if that's what everything boils down to. But it is certainly something that it will boil down to in one way, uh, which will be uh, absolute chaos and bedlam and obviously the trigger for the next stage in the ongoing financial crisis. Let's not forget 20,000 gold. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but you know what's interesting though, James. Just yesterday we talked about there was uh, it was reported that there was a secret uh, meeting between the U.S. and Iran. That was just yesterday uh, that that they had held a, a private meeting uh, uh, between the the two countries. And what I don't understand about this, why would go? Why would they go after a Brit, a Royal Navy frigate? I mean, they're trying to they're trying to keep Europe, the European Union. 
and right, and, right, and the UK in the agreement. So why would they go after their? Yeah. Ship? I'm not sure UK is part of that agreement. I have to look it up. The P5 plus one, but I'm not sure UK is a signatory to that. Are they? Mm. Yeah, we need to look that That's up. A good but question. but okay. regardless, you are correct. Uh, I, yes, clearly Iran, to the extent that it wants to target anything would be more interested in the U.S. specifically because right. of the sanctions and all of that. And yes, they clearly, it would not be in their interest to start something with a European, whatever that means post-Brexit, but a European power, because precisely because this, all of this is on this knife edge of, well, Europe is going to start their own swift alternative in order to transact with Iran and to skirt U.S. sanctions and all of this stuff. Yeah, it is a knife edge situation. And again, the only possible outcome of an incident like this is to drive chaos in the region. I believe, you know, we want, I want to get to your uh, Clash of Civilization uh, newsletter uh, article you wrote. But first, uh, you know Jim Sinclair. Are you familiar with Jim Sinclair? Uh, yes, I don't follow his work, but I'm familiar with him. Well, there was a recent interview with uh, Greg Hunter and his business partner, Bill Holter, and uh, they were talking about two various resets of, uh, the, uh, of the U.S. dollar. And um, Sinclair says he believes the reset has already started. It's going to happen in two uh, segments. Uh, the first reset, uh, the dollar is going to get sliced in half. The second reset is going to take gold to a price where it will balance the ability to pay global debt. Uh, we all know what the global debt is. And, of course, this comes with the predictions of gold prices, you know, off the charts to the moon and back and so forth, which I believe gold is going to go. But I don't think it's going to go with their latest uh, uh, prediction of, you know, $50,000 and $85,000. My question, though, with all of this being said, with the resets and where we are financially, whether whatever the catalyst is to create this this avalanche of of what we're going to face in the financial markets, will President Trump will he be the one to preside over this mother of all bankruptcies That's, that we see? Yeah. That's certainly a possibility, isn't it? And these things often take place around the time of election selection campaigns and transitions, um, because then it is very easy to dump all of the blame on this particular bird and then change out the, the liner in the birdcage and put in a new bird and, and act as if the new bird is the savior. That's, of course, exactly what happened at the very, very end of the Bush administration, where we saw the, the Lehman collapse and that crisis taking place as the uh, it, just in the final stages of the 2008 election selection campaign. And Obama comes in as one of the saviors. Obama and McCain made their joint uh, uh, statements about preserving the economy and all of this. And, uh, you know, everyone rallies around to try to save the, the economy that, uh, again, can be blamed uh, partisanly. It can be blamed entirely on Bush, for example. And then, oh, it's a Republican thing, so we'll get a Democrat in and everything will go swimmingly. <laughs> and then... That's very possible. I mean, certainly Trump does have political uh, enemies. I mean, regardless of what you think of him, he does have political enemies. And it would be very enticing for them. Uh, and there is motivation for them to start some sort of economic cataclysm, se seismic earthquake during his watch so that they can then blame him for it. And this could be part of the 2020 selection circus that's coming. So that's certainly one of the factors in this. Although it's not as, as I think that uh, that synopsis 
paint. So that's not the fundamental factor here. It isn't fundamentally about a Republican or a Democrat in office or anything like that. It is fundamentally the way the system is structured and what we've been talking about uh, for a very long time. I've been talking about it for over a decade now. I'm sure you've been talking about it for longer. And uh, we know that the system is going to, to collapse in some form. It is not going to persist in the way that it is. The only question is when and how that transition takes place. And if it takes place under Trump, I'm sure they'll blame it on the Republicans. And that will be some sort of justification for voting Democrat, I guess. <laughs> oh, heaven help us. Um well, you know, just recently this week, uh, President Trump has asked uh, his aides to find ways to weaken the dollar. He says, if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> so, isn't that great monetary policy? <laughs> if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so, um, any comments on that as far as, is this just part of the game they're playing and so forth? And uh, weakening, it's, a game, it's a sad game because people yeah. are gonna, their lives are going to be destroyed. Weakening of That's, currencies, beggar thy neighbor, the race to the bottom. We have seen this before, and we saw it in the 1930s. And that should paint some sort of picture of where this type of thing can devolve into in the coming years. And that's a scary thing for everyone. So I think people should... I've written about this before for The Forecaster. I wrote a, uh, uh, an article on From Trade War to Hot War Via Global Economic Collapse... So again, I've been talking about this for some time, and uh, unfortunately we're starting to see things play out that way. And as I've talked about for years and years, I think that the next form of world reserve currency will be some sort of basket idea, basket currency. And the SDR is a ready-made example of that that already exists, that's administered by the International Monetary Fund, the special drawing rights of the IMF. People should look that up if they haven't. They can look it up on my website where I've written about it extensively in the past. But perhaps more long-term thinking and seeing where things are playing out from here, we could look at something like, not necessarily in particular, but something like Facebook's new Libra cryptocurrency, which, as people may or may not know, is uh, going to function uh, by way of a basket of currencies that it will be buying into. Essentially, new Libra will be created when people buy into the Libra system, and they take that money and uh, put it away in, in, in I'm not sure which currencies they're using, but they are holding a basket of currencies, essentially re reserve fiat currencies that will underlie this revolutionary crypto, quote-unquote, cryptocurrency that uh, Facebook is launching. And long-term, again, I'm not sure this particular Facebook variant of that is the way that it's going to go, but I think something like that very much could be the way this goes, in that it maintains a sort of currency that's tradable and um, people can use at the lower levels, but which behind the scenes will be backed up by the same old, same old bankster system. Um, just a new new wine and old bottle, essentially. Well, I mean, governments... Old I mean, how are government... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I screwed that up. <laughs> how are governments going to... Are, are governments partners? I mean, we know they're partners in surveillance, you know, with every person on the planet. Are they going to be partners in... Um, this new monetary system that these tech companies like Facebook is creating with the, this Libra currency? Or is the government just going to shut down the internet and keep it from happening? Because, you know, governments get upset, particularly the U.S., when you start dealing with current, mm -hmm. with, you know, something yeah. other than their own. Exactly. Well, that, and we already see signs that governments are getting angry about this. China uh, is. Uh, there, there was a report recently, I have to look into this in more detail, but the report was, the headline was to the effect that China uh, is uh, prepping their own digital currency in response to Facebook's Libra, um, which I think 
I, again, I have to delve into the details, but it sounds like a misnomer because China has been developing its own digital currency for several years now, and I've written about that before in the forecaster as well, although Libra might be a good reason for them to sort of unveil it. Oh, you know, we, we need to stop this Facebook thing or nip it in the bud, so we're going to have our own alternative. Uh, and India is currently looking at legislation that would uh, make trading in cryptocurrency illegal. And again, that was announced right after this Libra uh, announcement. So clearly, I think certain... Governments are nervous about the idea, especially of Facebook becoming, I mean, I, there's a number of people involved in this Libra organization, but Facebook is spearheading it and they were the ones that put it together. So I think everyone sees the writing on the wall and where that's coming from and which, uh, which country or countries might benefit from that and which ones might not. And I think India and China, for example, might feel that they might be left out if Libra becomes some sort of international currency. So they're looking to clamp down on it. So yeah, I, as always, I think there's going to be um, jockeying for position and backstabbing and what have you. It's not like there is one monolithic conspiracy that ruins, runs everything. I think there are different power factions and they're looking for their own seat at the table. So uh, as I say, I'm not convinced Libra is going to be the crypt, quote unquote, I shouldn't even use the term cryptocurrency because that's not what it is, but uh, digital currency that will be the one to rule over us all. But it will be something like that, I think. And uh, probably administered through some sort one of these globalist institutions, the IMF or whatever, which, strangely enough, the U.S. arch nemesis, you know, China and Russia and other countries not only sign up to, but actively promote. So that's got to give you some window into, you know, where this is ultimately heading. Oh, right. Uh, let's see. Well, we're going to be heading into a break here in just a few uh, seconds. I want to talk when we come back about um, last month, uh, you wrote an article about uh, the truth about Tiananmen Square. And uh, the follow-up article is called The Clash of the Civilizations 2.0. And we're going to talk about that when we come back from this break. Please stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and I'm here with James Corbett. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver Trading, 1-800-375-4188. And I'm real pleased to uh, have James Corbett joining us today. And, of course, visit his website, please, thecorbettreport.com, thecorbettreport.com, and also the International Forecaster their website, theinternationalforecaster.com. Please make sure you request a complimentary issue and then get signed up. Get us, uh, uh, I, I believe it's just online. So you have to, um, are they, I don't think they send hard copies anymore like they did at one point in time. I'm not sure, but uh, it's worth getting, ladies and gentlemen. Heading into the break, we we're talking about the Clash of Civilizations 2.0. And um, you point out that the term Clash of Civilization is merely a convenient justification for the United States. And regardless of how different China may be, it doesn't follow that the U.S. has to engage in a Cold War-style rivalry with the Chinese government. What do you mean by that? And would you like to uh, perhaps... Um, Give us a little more details on your article. Yes. All right. So uh, last month, as people may or may not have clued in, uh, it was the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square incident uh, in 1989. And so I was doing some reporting with regards to that. And surprise, surprise, the story that we all kind of vaguely know, we just know yeah, there was some kind of massacre, and it was the you know the evil Chinese government. I mean, there are elements of truth to that, but there are elements of lies to that. And surprisingly, uh, they all get swirled around together and form a kind of collective memory that's kind of half right and and kind of half wrong. What's the, so? What does this matter? Well, it matters specifically, of course, because this is in the context of 
right now China is be- being situated and and blocked into the enemy that will, as I I keep saying, and I think I will be proven right, unfortunately, as the 21st century moves along, it's going to be the big nemesis for the U.S. empire in the 21st century, regardless of whatever particular trade deal is worked out here or there. I think there, the the bigger writing on the wall is that this is the Cold War for the 20th, 21st century. And so in that regard, I, I sort of ended my Tiananmen Square article by talking about um, the kind of strangeness of the fact that although there are provable parts of the Tiananmen Square story that are, are propounded in the media, even to this day, that are provably wrong, even from some of the own people involved in that, including U.S. ambassadors and, and BBC reporters and others who have said, no, this is wrong, I, I reported wrong at the time, and here's the truth, that never gets reported. Why, why would the Chinese sort of sit back and essentially take this? I mean, of course, they scrub any uh, Tiananmen uh, mentions from the Chinese internet, which obviously um, raises a lot of questions. Uh, I mean, shouldn't shouldn't they be about free speech and whatever? But they they don't they don't actively attack this story. And I, I sort of left that as a question mark at the end of my Tiananmen Square article, which I I tackle in my Clash of Civilizations article, which is essentially bringing up the idea. Well, this is a clash of civilizations, isn't it? So you know we can't we can't judge what it means for a power to be silent on a on some sort of accusation from our Western perspective because these are Chinese and they have a different perspective. That that brings in that specter of a clash of civilizations. This isn't just an economic power rivalry kind of thing. This isn't just the British Empire facing the German, the rising German Empire of the you know early 20th century that led to World War One. This is something altogether different. I mean, back in that day, you had two European powers that shared a certain cultural history and spoke. Uh, if not the same language, at least they they spoke each other's languages and understood each other's mindsets, and and the royal families were uh, all related and all of that. Well, here we have a situation where, and here let me quote uh, a uh, director of policy planning in the U.S. State Department, Chiron Skinner, who said at a future security forum in Washington in May, when we think about the Soviet Union in that competition, the Cold War, in a way it was a fight within the Western family. This U.S.-China struggle is a fight with a really different civilization and a different ideology, and the United States hasn't had that before. In China, we have an economic competitor. We have an ideological competitor, one that really does seek a kind of global reach that many of us didn't expect a couple of decades ago. And I think it's also striking that it's the first time that we will have a great power competitor that is not Caucasian, (laughs) which, again, this is a U.S. State Department representative saying this. It's kind of not the usual diplomatic mealy mouth language. That's kind of a strange statement. But it does feed directly into a narrative that was crafted a couple of decades ago, the, the narrative of the clash of civilizations. And people may have heard that term because it was first popularized in the early 90s by Samuel Huntington, first writing in Foreign Affairs, which is the mouthpiece propaganda rag for uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, but then developing into a book called The Clash of Civilizations, where basically it's the West versus Islam, and that's going to be the big clash that's going to to decide the future. And here, you know, that was in the late, in the 1990s, just after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they're looking for their next boogeyman. It's Islamic terror. And, you know, they they write about this in Foreign Affairs, and people like uh, Philip Zelikow and others write about, you know, Osama bin Laden and the threat of Islamic terror, and then, lo and behold, 9-11 and the war on terror and all of that. So it all is is continuing to play out exactly as Samuel Huntington, quote-unquote, predicted, right? Well, actually, Huntington, Huntington got the idea for Clash of Civilizations from someone else, Bernard Lewis, who wrote about it originally in 92, I believe it was. 
in an article in the Atlantic. I'm sorry, 1990. He wrote The Roots of Muslim Rage, uh, in which he proposed there was a clash of civilizations uh, between Christendom and, and Islam. And he said, uh, the perhaps irrational but surely historic reaction of an ancient rival against our Judeo- Judeo-Christian heritage, our secular present, and the worldwide expansion of both. Now, Bernard Lewis was a uh, a diehard Zionist and an imperial stooge, and he was thanked by Darth Cheney himself in 2006 for his contributions to, essentially, the War on Terror narrative and everything. But to his credit, in that September 1990 article where he introduced that that term, the Clash of Civilizations, uh, he, he put it in kind of the nice diplomatic way that we would expect it. You know, we must strive to achieve a better, better appreciation of other religious and political cultures through the study of their history, their literature, and their achievements. And at the same time, we may hope they will try to achieve a better understanding of ours. You know, hold hands, kumbaya. But he was not a simpleton. He knew what the introducing a phrase like clash of civilizations into the political lexicon in the Beltway was going to have the effect of producing a Samuel Huntington who's saying, okay, there's a clash of civilizations, so let's figure out how to fight this new war. And, and it very quickly turned into all of that, unsurprisingly. So that's the framework for this. And now it's being shifted over from the Middle East and you know the Christian-Muslim fight and whatever the way that's being framed, the war on terror, which is getting a little long in the tooth. As I say, in the long run, in the 21st century, I think it will be more directed at China. And hey, now we have this template for it. It's a clash of civilizations, the Chinese civilization in this case versus whatever, the Western civilization or however you want to frame it. Um, And that is, I think, the template they're going to use. But just in the same way that the war on terror clash of civilizations template was a false template that was used to gin up support for a uh, never-ending war, essentially, I think that's exactly what this clash of civilizations rhetoric is going to be used for, to gin up the never-ending war of the 21st century. And that's, uh, that's scary because, of course, we all know what the war on terror led to. And now that we have a war on the non-Caucasian Chinese... And the new clash of civilizations, I think we can look forward to much more devastation and carnage. Uh, Whether economic, and I guess we can hope, question mark, that it's only economic, but unfortunately, potentially military as well. Well, you know, I think uh, there was a a quote attributed to uh, Napoleon, and um, for decades I but it was China's a sleeping lion. When she wakes, she will shake the world. Uh, Let her sleep. For when she wakes, uh, you know, she's going to shake the world. And uh, that's what China is kind of doing. China is very much an old, Mm -hmm. a very, very old civilization with a very proud past. And the Chinese people are proud of their past. And uh, it was called the, uh, I think, the century of humiliation is what they call the time of the European, basically, takeover of China and its economy and the, the opium running and all of that, that devastated uh, China and left it in a pretty terrible condition, which is what led to the conflicts that then led to the rise of the communists. So I think we have to, uh, it's it's another big blank in the minds of most people in the exact same way that pre-9-11, the Islamic world and, you know, Iraq, Iran, I don't know, what's the difference and who uh, who's what, I, I, I don't know anything about that, was all kind of a big blank on people's minds, which was then ridden into by this war, uh, Clash of Civilizations narrative, the people who were already prepared for this to be the guiding narrative. Well, I think, again, I think the public is disserved by not knowing anything really essentially about China, its history, its civilization, what motivates the Chinese people, the way they look at the world. That will 
come into play, and that will be important as we go on in the 21st century. We wanted to talk a little bit about your uh, your most recent article, um, Italy versus the bankers. Speaking of bankers, any quick comments on Deutsche Bank? <laughs> uh, other than, yeah, I mean, I think we all knew it was going to um, mm-hmm. go bust in some form. And this is, maybe this is just the first stage of that bust. But at any rate, it's uh, obviously not a good thing. And at least in terms of the 18,000 people who are going to be losing their jobs and the economic turmoil that it will cause. But again, this is the nature of the system. And uh, unfortunately, as we saw with Lehman, the, this could be the beginning of a much worse spiral. Um, you, won't, you talk about Italy and the banksters. And um, uh, is this Italy's turn once again to be in the European hot seat? It looks that way. Um, you, uh, yes. Uh, so uh, this article, Italy versus the Banksters, uh, goes through uh, the, the brief history of the never-ending Euro dumpster fire, which has basically been going on since the Euro was launched in 99. Uh, I remember, it was only two years after that that Greece was, it cooked its books. In fact, had Goldman Sachs help it to cook its books, specifically so it could join the Eurozone, which, of course, blew up in the Eurozone's face a decade later with the Greek crisis and... And there was Portugal and Italy and Ireland and Spain and all their debt, sovereign debt crises and the bailouts and all of that. And people might have, I guess, turned their attention away from the European financial crisis and more towards the migration crisis and other things. But the financial crisis never really went away. It's just kind of changed hands a couple of times and it's been kind of swept under the rug and they've put... uh, put some of the worst fires out, but it's still continuing to go. And right now, Italy is once again in the hot seat. And this is at least somewhat related to the fact of recent elections that have put in a quote-unquote, oh my God, hold your breath, clutch your pearls, populist government. And I defy you, I really do defy you to go and read any mainstream media article on on this uh, that doesn't go more than a couple of sentences before it in some way brings up the populist government and the Eurosceptic government of Italy or the extremist government. It's always put in those terms. Um, and that gives you a sense of what's going on here. Uh, essentially, a government got elected into power that, you know, isn't quite the, ty- the kind of technocrats that the EU is used to dealing with and wants to deal with. Uh, this, I, and certainly, this doesn't mean I'm choosing sides and I, I think this is a great government and it's going to do all great things, but uh, it will do some things that the banksters don't necessarily like. And one of them, which is really fascinating, and I haven't seen a whole lot of coverage about, but I think there should be more, is the potential for an introduction of an alternative currency within the Eurozone. Uh, specifically, it's been floated, it was put in the, uh, I, I think, in the, the election platform of the, the party that ultimately is leading the, the current coalition government, um, the idea of floating a mini BOT, Buono Ordinary Del Tesoro, Ordinary Treasury Bond, a mini, mini bots that would uh, be in denominations. There's nothing, as they say, there's nothing in the law that says the, the smallest donation for some sort of treasury has to be a thousand euro or whatever. No, it could be any denomination we want. So we're going to issue these mini bots down to euro denominations like 100 euro or 50 euro or 20 euro. And we're going to start giving these out to contractors with the government and they will be redeemable for, uh, in, through taxes. So Essentially, this is an alternative currency in all but name, and it would pose some sort of threat to the ECB. It would also grease the skids if there was to be an 
Ital exit, if Italy was to leave the Eurozone, they would already have some sort of currency in place as a stopgap so that they wouldn't have to basically go with the euro or, or just start from scratch. So the, the, this is an interesting maneuver, and it certainly portends some sort of fight with the ECB, which is why the ECB turned around and immediately said that the Bank of Italy doesn't really own its gold reserves. Well, who does own its gold reserves if the Bank of Italy doesn't? Well, of course, the ECB wants to, everyone to believe that the ECB owns it and can, ultimately controls it. Um, so now you're starting to see the uh, Italian, the, the Bank of Italy kind of fighting with the ECB over its own gold reserves. And it's just some crazy stuff happening over there. And as I say, there's not a lot of traction on this in a lot of the media I'm following, but I hope more people will pay attention to this because it's obviously unfolding right now. And I'm going to be very much interested to see where this goes. Well, you know, it was just a little over a year ago that President Trump, <clears throat> it was reported that he had offered uh, the United States assistance to help fund uh, Italy's public debt. And, um, you know, he's, he supported the, the cause of those in Italy who want to leave the euro. And um, so I, I, I read about that about a year ago. And, you know, here we are. And, and it, it, people have such a hard time understanding James all of this is going on. It just doesn't seem to make any difference. It's just another day. It's just some more reporting. It's just some more, you know, they can't relate to what is truly happening to, to those that are affected right. by all of this because yeah. they themselves have yet to be affected. Well, it's a sad part of human nature, but it is a part of human nature. Most people will not... Um will not really start to respond or pay attention until it affects them in some way. Um, some people do. A lot of people don't. They just want to continue on with their lives. Uh, it will affect yeah. them someday. And that's what you and I and others out there are doing is trying to at least raise the alarm bells. So at the very least, when this does start to affect people, there will be sources of information that they can turn to that are not controlled by the same corporate or government entities that control a lot of the information out there. Case in point, what's happening with Jeffrey Epstein right now? I've been talking about this case for years, and finally, it's starting to get some mainstream attention. Hopefully, that will get more people involved in oh, researching. Oh, I wish we would have talked a little bit about him. because I work all day. We'll talk about that next time for sure, okay. depending on what's released here in the next couple of uh, weeks. But thank you once again for joining me, and I so, so do enjoy it, and so do the listeners. We'll be back, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Please, uh, until then, be safe, good night, and God bless. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.